You're listening to episode two of Justice, Mercy, Faith, a podcast from The Christian Citizen. In this episode, enjoy Christian Citizen contributors, the Reverend Dr. Greg Johnson, on what makes you so strong, the strength to press through suffering in the spiritual DNA of the Black Church. The Reverend Alan Rudnick discuss what Christians get wrong about kingdom theology, and the Reverend Dr. Corey Fields on privilege, power, and the myth of all things equal. The Reverend Dr. Greg Johnson is pastor of Cornerstone Community Church in Endicott, New York. Here he is with his essay, What Makes You So Strong? Suffering is a part of the human experience. No one is exempt from this unsavory element of life. While we may be familiar with the word, the concept, and the multifaceted aspects of suffering, we struggle to understand it. Death comes and invades our lives, causing pain and suffering. Sickness, unexpected, out of the blue, attacks, and the body we once knew betrays us. Catastrophic events such as fires, hurricanes, and floods bombard us. We suffer the loss of homes and treasured possessions. Sometimes lives are lost in these heart-wrenching occurrences. This past year, I encountered several conversations about suffering. Over coffee, a white colleague and I discussed his upcoming sabbatical. It is his plan to explore how African-Americans deal with suffering. In his words, African-Americans appear to be resilient when it comes to suffering. Hmm. While I tried to contain the many questions that statement raised, I listened to him. He shared his journey with rheumatoid arthritis. For him, this genetic disease was progressing and making his life difficult. He walked in with a cane and struggled to stand when we left. Noting that he was suffering with pain and the other discomforts of this illness, he wanted to figure out how to take this journey of suffering gracefully. Prior to that conversation, there were conversations with friends about suffering in general. Many of us on this spiritual journey called life raised the questions like, why do people, good people, suffer? Why do children have to suffer? These conversations caused me to reflect on my work as a chaplain. I have worked in the field of chaplaincy for over 15 years. On the journey of chaplaincy, I've had the privilege to walk with people who have dealt with suffering so gracefully. I was moved to tears. A woman dying of cancer shared, as I sat at her bedside, that she was not afraid of death. She was not afraid of her own mortality. As her time drew to a close, she noted that she wanted to leave behind a testimony, a testimony of strength and grace for her family. These two words are descriptive of people who suffer seemingly sometimes in silence yet they are not silent. As I ponder my colleague's appreciation for the resilience of African-Americans, I cannot help but reflect on the suffering of African-Americans historically and reflect on the faith of perseverance. 
From the Ivory Coast of Africa to the shores of the then 13 colonies, Africans were shipped to America. Along with the African diaspora came a tenacity to survive amid adversity. America's history is filled with stories of the strength and grace of countless African-Americans who, in the face of adversity, persevered. This tenacity was not birthed in this country, but brought to this country. It is carved in the slave ships at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean and written in the fabric of our history. The ancestors of African-Americans nurtured for future generations a legacy of strength and grace. It was through the bloodiness and brutishness of slavery that African-Americans solidified the strength and grace to endure hardship. Suffering was an everyday occurrence for slaves and descendants of slaves. The will to live and be free surpassed the bitterness of suffering. While the African diaspora did not articulate a theology of hope as scholars, the theology of liberation is a theology of hope that describes a people marred in suffering, yet they rise above it. The late Maya Angelou captured the daily struggle of African-Americans in her poem, Still I Rise. She shared, you may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may tread me in the very dirt, but still, like dust, I rise. While poets like Angelou gave voice to the struggles of her people, the African diaspora cultivated music that not only articulated the struggle, but gave hope. Formed out of suffering, songs like Oh Freedom, I Don't Feel No Ways Tired, lift every voice and sing, and we shall overcome. Not only told the story, but pointed to hope. These are the tools, along with the biblical narrative of hope, that my ancestors used to traverse the tapestry of suffering in the days when hope unborn had died. In the days when hope unborn had died, there were preachers who lifted up the banner of hope in the black church. Each Sunday, a message of hope was proclaimed from the pulpit of the black church that refreshed, revived, and restored hope for another week. Each week, congregants heard the message of hope from the lacks of Gardner C. Taylor, James Farmer Sr., Vernon Johns, Adam Clayton Powell Sr., and James Earl Massey. At the center of the African-American community was the black church. It was the black church that anchored the civil rights movement. In the black church, Jesus was and still is the victorious conqueror. It was the message of the social gospel that provided the sinew for African-Americans to press forward amid suffering. To my colleagues and others who are inquisitive about the resilience of African-Americans, 
I say it is found in the ethos of the black church experience. It is found in the history of America. It is found in the music that mends broken hearts. It is found in the literature that gives voice to the downtrodden. And it is found in the faith forged out of the necessity, not only to survive, but to thrive. What makes us so strong? The strength to press through suffering is in the spiritual DNA of the black church. It is stamped into the conscience of a people who refuse to be silenced. The Reverend Alan Rudnick is an American Baptist minister, author, and Ph.D. student at LaSalle University of Philadelphia. He is a former member of the Board of Directors for the American Baptist Home Mission Societies, Board of General Ministries, and Mission Council of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The next voice you hear is his, with his essay, What Christians Get Wrong About Kingdom Theology. We live in a world that is obsessed with duality and dualism. Our culture is narrated by opposing forces such as Democrat and Republican, poor and rich, the winners and losers, and the saved and unsaved. Dramatic attention of such opposing viewpoints creates tension and unnecessary anxiety in cultural and family systems. When religious people create a hyper-focus on dualism, it bifurcates the love of Christ and basic Bible comprehension. When Liberty University president and evangelical leader Jerry Falwell Jr. spoke to the Washington Post about politics, Christianity, poverty, and culture, he made several critical theological, hermeneutical, and exegetical mistakes. Among his comments, he said, quote, There's two kingdoms. There's the earthly kingdom and the heavenly kingdom. In the heavenly kingdom, the responsibility is to treat others as you'd like to be treated. In the earthly kingdom, the responsibility is to choose leaders who will do what's best for your country. Think about it. Why have Americans been able to do more to help people in need around the world than any other country in history? It's because of free enterprise, freedom, ingenuity, entrepreneurialism, and wealth. A poor person never gave anyone a job. A poor person never gave anybody charity, not of any real volume. It's just common sense to me, end quote. Falwell correctly cites Jesus' teaching on the so-called golden rule, which originates from the Gospels, but he does not get much correct after his biblical citation. When Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God, sometimes called the kingdom of heaven, it was a call to bring about God's righteousness, love, compassion, values, and goodness for all people. As a way to further teach and illustrate God's kingdom, Jesus often employed the use of parable or story. Jesus would say, the kingdom of God is like. Such use of simile is Jesus' attempt to educate his listeners to deeper spiritual realities, using references incorporated into ancient daily life. Jesus' description of God's kingdom was centered on spiritual activity made real. It is like a mustard seed, planted that grows exponentially, or is like a hidden treasure revealed. In Jesus' similes, the kingdom of God takes many forms, 
Jesus communicated that this kingdom could be made real in implementing his commands of the kingdom. People in Jesus' day had a hard time with this concept that the kingdom of God was not a political or power-controlled realm. When asked where the kingdom of God is, Jesus replied, quote, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst, end quote. Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 21. This idea that the kingdom of God is in our midst is something that Jerry Falwell Jr. does not understand or does not want to understand. The idea of the dualism of an earthly kingdom and a heavenly kingdom was not something Jesus was interested in dividing, quite the opposite. Jesus wanted to make the place God dwells with all God's goodness an earthly reality. This is reflected in the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew 6, quote, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus taught his disciples that God's kingdom could be made real right now. Christianity, almost from its beginning, has often created dualities in trying to understand the mystical connection between God, God's world, our role in God's world, salvation, love, grace, righteousness, and forgiveness. These concepts are far-reaching. Such dual thinking makes these concepts easier to understand by creating two opposing forces. Much of our religious thinking of Christianity is a function of our church fathers being influenced by Neoplatonism. For example, Augustine embodied such philosophy and theology when he proposed the idea of the city of God and the city of man in his work entitled City of God. Augustine was not writing about two kingdoms, as Farwell framed in his interview, but a theological argument on how God could let Rome be sacked by opposing forces. In God's kingdom, the poor are centrally placed. Falwell errs in his kingdom theology, thinking that the poor have never really contributed anything of real substance, when in fact Jesus praised a poor widow in Mark chapter 12, verse 43 to 44. We read, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the offering box than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. This scripture reveals a fatal flaw in Falwell's two kingdom systems of thinking. In God's kingdom, which is to be made real among God's people in their action, the values of love, mercy, kindness, selflessness, and compassion activate the lighthouse signal to all that God's kingdom is present, real, and active. As 21st century American Christians, we exist in a culture that values capitalistic ideals, but that does not mean our Christian theology of God's kingdom values the economic priorities of Falwell's, quote, free enterprise, freedom, ingenuity, entrepreneurialism, and wealth, end quote. Certainly those things have their place in God's kingdom, but they do not have centrality in God's kingdom. 
as Jesus ushered in this beginning of God's renewed vision of God's kingdom, we Christians believe that there is a day when this kingdom will be fully realized, where God, quote, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will not exist anymore, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the former things have ceased to exist, end quote. Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. Until that day, we are called to make God's kingdom visible through our love of God and neighbor. The kingdom theology espoused by Jerry Falwell Jr. is not common sense, as he claims. It is a duality created to reinforce political and power narratives that justify ignoring the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, and the downtrodden. To give attention to society's most vulnerable requires us to become humble and shed power. For many Christians, this is too great a cost. And so it is far easier to say this earthly kingdom is about structures, utility, and economy. And God's kingdom, up there far away in heaven, is about love, kindness, and grace. Such dualism tempts Christians to ignore the challenging but required work of Jesus. True kingdom theology, as Jesus taught, is embodied by serving at a homeless shelter, loving your Muslim neighbor on your street by inviting them to dinner, facing down racism at work, or speaking up for those seeking asylum in your community. Do not make a justification of ignoring the weightier matters of the gospel, but seek to fulfill Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Reject the two kingdoms theology and make God's kingdom real on earth. The Reverend Dr. Corey Fields is senior pastor of Calvary Baptist Church of Newark, Delaware. In his essay, Privilege, Power, and the Myth of All Things Equal, he argues, disenfranchisement is not an accident. The sooner we admit that and leave room for the voice and leadership of minority populations, the better. Amir Rotman, a Bangladeshi-Australian comedian, has a clever way of addressing the subject of race and privilege. In his comedy routines, he tends to target white majority power structures, and he's often accused of, quote, reverse racism. In one particular stand-up, he addressed this. He explained, with characteristic sarcasm, what he thinks would qualify as reverse racism. He said he would need a time machine to go back in time before Europe colonized the world. He would have to go invade and steal the land of white Europeans, set up a white slave trade, set up societies that privilege black and brown people at every social, economic, and political level, subject white people to black and brown people's standards of beauty, etc. And then, he said, if after thousands of years of that, he got on stage and took cuts at white people, that would be reverse racism. What Rotman is pointing out here is how we so often treat differing groups as if they're on a level playing field without any reference to context, history, or the dynamics of power. Those of us in the white majority often operate with the myth of all things equal, the idea that we all share an equal playing field with equal expectations. In this mythical equal space, 
A person of color critiquing a white majority that has used its power to oppress people of color for centuries is the same as a white person making jokes about a person of color. This myth is a very pervasive one that is quite useful to majority populations because it helps them hold on to power. It's a dirty trick that many unsuspectingly play along with. It is persuasive because it sounds impartial and fair-minded. What it actually does, however, is further marginalize and victimize those who don't have the same power or influence. One of its most common manifestations is when people who grew up in healthy, nurturing environments look at someone who was born into poverty and tell them to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. It's a double fallacy. Not only does the more fortunate person mistakenly believe they are self-made, but it also assumes that the person in poverty has the same big bootstraps. Even though poverty and its disastrous effects have been thoroughly researched, the myth of all things equal between socioeconomic classes persists. In a just world, individuals and groups with a higher level of power and influence would be held to higher standards. In fact, it's often just the opposite. People who have less power, less of an advantage, or a less privileged upbringing are expected to bear a weight that not even their more powerful and privileged counterparts are asked to bear. We hold black kids to higher expectations of knowledge, responsibility, and judgment than police officers with a badge and a gun. We hold refugees and immigrants to a higher standard of knowledge, honesty, and sometimes vetting than the people we elect to public office. We hold the poor to a tougher work ethic than people who inherited their wealth. I'm reminded of Jesus's critique of some of the leaders of his day in Matthew 23, 4. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. When there are mass protests about a certain injustice, media outlets who would rather keep the status quo use their access and influence to cast the protesters as angry mobs, often using the worst of the bunch to discredit the entire movement. This tactic seems most often used with communities of color and was out in full force at the start of the Black Lives Matter movement. One of 2018's most watched and debated controversies was also one that put this myth of equal footing on full display. During the hearings for Justice Brett Kavanaugh and his accuser Christine Blasey Ford, the conduct, memory, and reputation of Ford, a vulnerable private citizen who has already had to move four times because of threats and harassment, were held to even higher standards than Kavanaugh a sitting judge with the backing of many powerful special interests. Many female victims of sexual assault know this dynamic all too well. The woman is hyper-scrutinized while the man is given the benefit of the doubt. A second but related trick used in this case was the suggestion that false accusations against men are just as common or likely as true ones. 
men and parents of boys immediately spoke as if they were under threat of a false accusation being leveled against them at any time. False accusations against men happen and are horrible for the accused when they do, but they are statistically extremely rare, while harassment and assault of women is horrifically common. As Cornell philosophy professor Kate Mann points out in her book, Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny, treating them as equally likely places further stress on the more vulnerable and elevates those in power even further. As we come to this year's Black History Month, it's important to remember this dynamic. Every year, some white citizens flippantly wonder why there is even such a thing as Black History Month and with varying levels of subtlety, suggest that this is evidence of special treatment for black people that white people do not get. This is, again, the myth of all things equal. Instead of complaining about a special history month, just be glad you don't need one. We need Black History Month because the accomplishments of the black community were repressed for so long. We need it because so much of our history was written by the slave master. We need it because there are still those in the halls of Congress who wonder out loud when white supremacy became offensive. Disenfranchisement is not an accident. The sooner we admit that and leave room for the voice and leadership of minority populations, the better. Women and minorities remain underrepresented in the highest leadership positions at virtually every level of church and society. We must continue trends like what happened this past November, where a historic number of women were elected to Congress, including the first ever Native American women. Studies have even shown that societies improve when women and minorities lead. Churches do too. Let's get on that train. That concludes this episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith. Thank you to this week's contributors, the Reverend Dr. Greg Johnson, Reverend Alan Rudnick, and the Reverend Dr. Corey Fields. Our theme music is Believable 2 by Peter Sandberg. We'll be back with a new episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith on February 28th. To learn more about The Christian Citizen, visit the website christiancitizen.us. Until next time, I'm Joshua Kiki. Thanks for listening.